from the Everything Went Black podcast. I'd like to welcome Dave McClellan and Hank Steamer tonight. Um, before we get into the podcast, I want to get some of the plugs out of the way. If you uh, train jujitsu, Muay Thai, or any sort of uh, you know CrossFit or anything like that, and you're looking to get a really durable bag, check out Dots of Sara. They make all hemp uh, gear bags, gis, grappling shorts, t-shirts, that sort of thing. You can access their site through the uh, www.everythingwentblackmedia.com website and just look over to the portal and um, you'll get to uh, get something really cool to put your stuff in and also support the podcast. Do you guys like, uh, you know, cashew butter and stuff like that? <laughs> you guys into like nut butters? And- uh, I'm, I'm a, pe- I'm a pretty, I'm kind of a peanut butter guy. Yeah, and we're, we're kind of straight peanut butter. Yeah. Straight peanut butter guys. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I would love to try it if it's some, you, know. you know, I really like cashew butter and almond butter and all that sort of stuff, but sometimes it's hard to find, you know, straight up just made out of almonds or cashews right. without any sugar added. But on it labs, they seem to be they seem to offer top quality organic nut butters, you know, um bars made out of like really, you know, really good ingredients, you know, basic stuff like that. And you know what? You can access their site through everythingwithblackmedia.com. You can uh, get some really high-quality food. You can buy um, exercise equipment like kettlebells, uh, battle ropes, uh, jump you know jump ropes, things like that. And you can you know also help support the podcast that way. So anyway, here we go. So Hank, uh, you're primarily an author. You know your works appeared in uh, Time Out New York. Um, You've, uh, you published a book. I did. And you're also a musician. I am. Stats <laughs> and Little A, Big A. Big A, Little A. Big A, Little A. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Dave, you're one of the founding members of, uh, of Craw. Yes. A band that's uh, incredibly hard to describe to somebody who hasn't heard you before. You have to use a lot of words with hyphens. <laughs> a lot of words. And then you have to say that it sounds like this, but it doesn't actually really sound like any of these things. <laughs> that's, that's true. Yeah, and then you have to get them interested enough to go back, whatever it is now, 20 years, and actually dig it out. But Hank's working to fix that. Yeah, so... <laughs> the digging out problem. So you and I, uh, Hank, we met through our mutual friend Chris Smith. Of, That's right, uh, it was Chris, yeah. Of Keel Hall. Yes, and oh, the way nice. Chris Smith, yes. The way he uh, described, you know, that your, this project that you're embarking on is, uh, he's like, you know, he's like, hey, Mike, you like Crawl, right? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> It's like my buddy Hank is putting together this project. He wants to, you know, collect all their material and, you know, re-release it. And, you know, he wants to get in touch with you. And, uh, you know, so what's uh, what's this project that you're working on right now as far as, you know, what's what was the impetus on trying to collect all this material and, you know? Well, I mean, the impetus is really, it goes back a really long time. I mean, I, I discovered Crawd, at, you know, at a formative time in my life. You know, it was probably around like 94, 95, I, I was a teenager, I was very into metal, you know, and I, and I discovered Craw and it sort of opened up this whole world to me of, of you know, I, I don't even think I knew that I was looking for something beyond listening to metal, um, things like, you know, death metal or Metallica or Pantera or whatever, but then like, you know, I discovered Craw and it just like, it captivated me so much just hearing those early records and then and then when I saw it live, it just turned into this whole other thing of just a complete obsession with the music. And, you know, sort of flash forward, you know, between the time, between that time and, you know, maybe maybe 10 years later, I, you know, I guess you could say I grew up to be, you know, a writer. I started writing about music for a living and, 
you know, doing a lot of radio work and doing a lot of sort of like curatorial stuff where I'm kind of trying to like, you know, dig out an old record or interview a musician that's sort of, you know, just shining light on stuff that, that hasn't really been exposed in the proper way. And that's a lot of what I like to do as a writer. Um, and so it was just sort of in the back of my mind always that I needed to do something that had to do with crawl. Like I needed, you know, I, I was always, you know, verbally, everyone I would meet who was in, remotely into this kind of music, I was always just kind of spreading the word however I could, and, you know, got all my friends into it, or at least those who had a similar kind of taste. And, you know, I, I just had back in the back of my mind, though, that like the music was the thing. I wanted the music to be out there for more people to hear because these records just fell away. And even in the, you know, I think what really got me going was the idea that even in the last maybe five, something like that years, when like that period had become so a lot of people were really scrutinizing that early nineties period. And like, there was so much music that was getting resurfaced, whether it was like that top layer of things like the Jesus lizard and slint and Fugazi that everyone, you know, th those are kind of household names in this, in this sphere. But then even below that, you know, there were these bands like bitch magnet or like Rodan or these other bands that were starting to kind of get their due, you know, the, through the reissues and things like that. And, and crawl was just not talked about, you know, it was just, and I think it had, you know, there were many different reasons for that, but I would, I would meet people who were super into that kind of thing and they still wouldn't know crawl. And that what was, was what really started to frustrate me. It was like that it just wasn't part of the narrative because to me it was like the pinnacle of that, I guess I would say, you know, progressive post hardcore. I don't really know what, again, no. the words fail. So it's just, but, but I mean like, you know, this, you know, aggressive, intelligent underground music of that time, a post hardcore or something. I thought I, 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 I had not then, and I still have not even going through jazz, through prog, through metal, through, you know, whatever, just always seeking out the weirdest, most extreme, most interesting stuff. I still never heard anything that I feel like touches these records for me in my personal listening. And so that's, and I just, it's important to me that, you know, I don't think a hundred copy box set, which is what I'm trying to do is going to like, you know, put crawl on the covers of magazines, but hopefully it'll just be in the conversation. You know what I mean? That's, that's really what I'm interested in. And to have like a keepsake for the fans to be like, Oh, well these records, you know, have them on really nice, high quality vinyl. Just, just like so that it can just be like archived properly. You know what I mean? That's sort of like my, my interest. How long have you been working on this project? Because Chris talked to me about this like a, a while ago. Well, it's gone through so many different phases. I mean, it was, again, just many years of just intense, like obsessive fandom. You know, Dave and I met, you know, we played music together, you know. But we met back then. We met back, yeah, exactly. Yeah. We met when I was 15 going to cross shows and like bothering these guys like they were, you know, Led Zeppelin or something. I was just a little kid who was just wanted to ask questions and know about stuff. And then like, you know, so then Dave and I met. You know, we, we played together for a while and then like, you know, but, but in terms of this project, I think, I think it took many forms. I think at first I was thinking it would just be kind of an oral history, maybe wanted to do interviews with these guys. And then like, I sort of realized that like in the end, you know, the music is the thing I want to, you know, obviously I'm, I have liner notes and things like that in mm -hmm. mind for this. But in the end, like I want the music to be front and center. I want people, you know, it just, it, 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 the thing that gives me the most pleasure to think about is the idea that more people would just be like coming across this who might. Because, you know, as you know, being someone who plays heavy music now, like what the and, and who also was around then, like what the climate is now versus then, like it's like there's so much more. There's like thousands yeah. of people who I think potential craw fans, do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Who just haven't heard it. And that just bums me out. And I feel like I, I just feel like a, you know, zealous mission to 
rectify that, I guess. Yeah, and especially since it feels like the last couple of years that there's been this revisitation of uh, that period. Yeah. Uh, you know, I can hear strains of uh, the touch and go sound and like exactly. the rep sound and a lot of contemporary bands that yeah. are active right now. Right. So the actual, um, you know, mechanical package that you're producing, like what, you know, what is that going to entail? Like what's... Well, this this thing's at this point, it's pretty hypothetical. I mean, yeah, you know, as as people will probably know when they're looking at this, it's going to go up in conjunction with the Kickstarter campaign. And, you know, really what we're trying to do is, you know, it, it's it's a fairly simple, like austere kind of package. We're not, I'm not, there's not a lot of bells and whistles with it. It's really just the first, the first three Craw albums. And the reason that I chose the first three was because the fourth Craw record, Bodies for Strontium 90, which, which was without Dave. Mm -hmm. That that album came out on like you know a very visible label Hydrahead. It got, you know, I'm not saying it got like a ton of recognition, but it got its due in the sense that it was put out into the world. It's still in print. It's on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on Bandcamp, whatever. So it's like that album exists in a way that the other three the, the other three just like the only way you can get them is to buy some like cheap weird used copies off Amazon or download it illegally or you know the records just disappeared after they were made. And so it's those three records, the first one, which is self-titled, the second one, Lost Nation Road, and the third one, Matt Monner's Surge. And each of those will be spread across two LPs because they're all too long to, to fit like comfortably on one LP. So it's a six LP box set, three records, six LPs, some nice liner notes entail, you know, involving interviews with the, with the band members. I'm, I'm going to try to sort of put together that oral, oral history that I had envisually, sorry, originally envisioned interview everybody, put together a chronology. And, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll write a little something, this or that. But really, it, again, it's just like get the music out there, high-quality vinyl, do some simple new artwork, but nothing that's trying to, like, really, like, replace more, so much as just, like... Has anyone, like, stepped yeah. forward, you know, like Aaron Turner or, uh, you know, you know, to provide any sort of it's artwork? Kind of, I think it's kind of just going to be me and my friend Drew, Drew Katz, who's a great artist that I, you know... And also a Craw fan from, you know, those 20 years ago days. Um, so he and I have got some perspective stuff. We've been working a little bit with Dave. And I'm sure it'll get more involved as, you know, you know, fingers crossed the money comes through. You know, you kind of just don't know at this stage. And, like, we're, we're everything's in sketch sketch mode, you know, right now. Yeah, so, so, so we're launching a Kickstarter. You know, this, this thing, obviously, as, as anyone knows who's had anything to do with vinyl pressing, you know, these things are expensive, you know, in a sense, prohibitively so, if you're trying to just sort of do it yourself. So we're trying to raise money to get this vinyl pressed. And, you know, we're, we're launching a Kickstarter campaign. And basically, like, you know, if people pay a certain amount, which is hovering in the, like, you know, two, $200 range, 215 something like that, then they will actually get a copy of this box set. Um it, you know, basically, you know, the, the money goes to everything from pressing the vinyl to to the packaging, to the shipping, to the mastering. You know, I've sort of got it all meticulously worked out. But then, like, there's all different ranges that people can donate. They can donate less and get, you know, remastered MP3s of these records. They can donate more and get... I've got all this kind of stuff floating around. I have, like, old set lists that I saved. I have some old t-shirts. I have posters from Derek Hess, who was a, who was an, uh, an artist from Cleveland, who is an artist from Cleveland, who Craw had a lot to do with back then. Um, and then some bootleg recordings that people have given me of the band and just sort of like little goodies to like entice people. But, but really it's like, you know, I'm making a hundred copies of this box set and basically I have to sort of pre-sell every one of those copies in order to get this thing off the ground at roughly 
$220 a piece. You know, six LPs, you know, in terms of like market value for that sort of thing, I've seen like three LP box sets that go for like a hundred and something, 150. I've seen five LP box sets that go for like 350. So I think that 220 for six is, you know, it's high. I realize that it's high, but it's also like market value. It just sort of is how much it costs to press limited run vinyl. Yeah, it's a pretty dedicated, uh, you know, undertaking, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Dave, you uh, were one of the founding members of Craw. And, uh, you know, so what, how did such a unique band form? And, you know, what were the circumstances surrounding the formation of the band? Um, well, I was saying to Hank that my memory is just going to, you know, fly out the window with all this stuff. But but that's a pretty basic question. We were, I was at school um, in Ohio with Rocky uh, Brockway, the other guitarist, and Joe McTie, the vocalist, and Chris Aponius, um, the our first bass player. So at the very beginning, it was Rocky and Chris and I playing our instruments together in the basements of one of the dorms that we lived in. Um, we found a drummer who uh, was named Laurie Davis, who played drums. Um, but we we've lost those recordings. But she was a drummer, and she went to the art school. She lost her tuition. She had to move. I forget what happened, but she didn't come back. Um, and in that, in the middle of that, we found Joe McTie, who, although he played bass and had a great uh, Fender P bass, didn't want to play bass. He wanted to sing, so we signed him up for that. Um, we played one or two gigs with Lori. She left. We found Neil Chastain, who's the drummer on the three records that Hank's talking the about. The first two. The first two, I'm sorry. Yeah. On the first two. Um, on the first two records that Hank's talking about. And um, we were just talking about Neil just now because Hank just talked to him. The The best part of the story about meeting Neil is that we used to walk by a basement window, a basement apartment window. We would look in and we would see, Rocky and I would look in and see all these uh, synthesizers and sequencers and samplers, which... At that time, you know, the sampler was, you know, the, everything was bigger than this Elisa's right here. It's all huge stuff. Massive, yeah. Massive stuff in the windows. And then finally a friend of ours said, well, if you guys need a drummer, I know a drummer. We went to this guy's apartment, and it was the guy with all that equipment. <laughs> um, so Neil, besides being a great drummer, had uh, a huge amount of electronics um, experience with sequencing, sampling, all that sort of stuff. And it was kind of, we... In, in starting to work with him, we really started to take things more seriously because he was going to music school. He was a professional musician. Um, and we started to work with him very seriously. And how, geez, what's what's the next step? I guess the next step is we just started playing some shows um, with Derek. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Euclid Tavern. At the Euclid Tavern with Derek Hess, who was booking the Euclid Tavern on uh, Monday nights. And the Euclid Tavern in Cleveland, I don't know if you've... Yeah, I know. I know yeah. familiar with it, yeah. Okay, well, before it is what it is now, it was a blues band, a blues bar, blues band bar, uh, Cleveland bands like Mr. Stress, um, Robert Jr. Lockwood, um, blues guys, you know, beer drinking, that sort of thing. So he took over Monday nights because no one else wanted it, and he would pack the place, and he got us opening up for some great bands. And he also helped us out... Um, with our very first single, he did the artwork, but he also kind of said, you know, you can step up and do this. Um, and it, we recorded that with Bill Karecki 
and uh, at his place on the west side long before his place down south in, or southern Ohio. Um, I mean, how far do you want me to go? It just, keep going. It, it just kind of goes the from stuff there. that people really want. To know. <clears throat> um, so then what happened after that? So then I think another, another huge thing is that Rocky... So we did... I guess we did... Actually, I need to back up because I skipped Chelify. I skipped the first tape. And that's a tape that we did with engineers that I'm not going to remember their names. I, I just am not. That was just like a, a demo cassette tape or... Well, it, was, it, sounds, it sounded pretty good, but it was, it was uh, different songs, songs that we never really re-recorded. It was a, a different sounding band. It had, it had aggression, but it wasn't as heavy. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, some of the names that, that Joe and I were throwing around at that time of other bands were like Slovenly and Phantom Tollbooth. Okay. And, so uh, sort of SST vibe. Yeah, yeah, a yeah. Later, later era SST sort of trip. Exactly. Like, and, and trippy, trippier stuff. So there was, yeah. it was, it was lighter. It wasn't, it wasn't poppier, but maybe it was a little bit, tiny bit more accessible or at least less threatening on the face of it. So we did that tape. Um, for those of you, uh, who may or may not be familiar with uh, the later SST catalog. Most of you probably know that SST Records is Greg Gaines' record label where he released, you know, some of the most, uh, you know, influential punk and hardcore music from the 80s, like Black Flag, you know, St. Vitus, though they're not really a hardcore band, but they're still influential, you know. Yeah, definitely. All sorts of weird you stuff. Know, Minute Man, yeah. Oscar Du, yeah. Descendants, the list goes yeah. on. The later catalog was a bit of a departure from that era um it was more like we were saying a little trippier yeah a little more jazz influence yeah, like trotsky ice pick you yeah. know like <laughs> slovenly like that sort of vibe uh gone was it gone, gone or gore? that's well gone all right which gone, one's the one with the knife on the that's gore gore, gore. is that, that dutch was, the yeah. dutch band right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. but gone is was well, gone right gone, gore is the one that i'm talking about yeah, yeah. They're, yeah. they're like a european i think they're dutch or belgian or something yeah like that. yeah, yeah. They were they were they were in the conversation at that point, um, but yeah. So we made that tape, um, and then somewhere around in there, and I'm going to get this confused. Uh, Albini came to the Yuko Tavern playing bass for Flower. Oh yeah, they had one record out of it. Yeah, it was a quarter quarter. Uh, yeah, I think so. Stick. I think that makes sense. One yeah. of them. Yeah, it might have been Touch and Go, but I think it was Quarter Stick. Um, so they came around, and Rocky you know, went up and gave him the tape and said, hey, we'd love to record with you because he knew who Albini, I mean, of course, we all knew who Albini was. We knew what was up with that. Um, and Albini got in touch with Rocky and said, yeah, you can come do this. And this is this is the part that it would be much better for Rocky to tell because I'm just not going to remember. Um, somewhere in there, we also got in touch with, maybe this was through Derek, I don't really know, um, through two guys who were starting a record label in Chicago. Or maybe they just straight up got in touch with us because we had played a couple of shows there. Um, and they started a record label called Choke, Inc. Brendan Coyne and um, Phil Tory, yeah. And they said, yeah, we're going to put, you're going to be the first record on our new record label. And we said, all right, that's great. 
you know, classic story. That That's fantastic. Um, and somewhere in there, we also went back to Bill Correcki. We, we recorded eight songs. I think we released another single. Then we took a bunch of those songs and more songs to Albini's, recorded this way too long first album, um, <laughs> which is, you know, you're talking about putting on two LPs. It's, it's, we, this was right when CDs were happening, right? Yeah. And, and um, Choke said, we're not going to do a vinyl release for you. We're just going to do CD. A tape, too. And tape. Cassette yeah. tapes. And right. cassette tapes. That's right. Yeah. One used to get out. Yeah. yeah. So we said, all right, well, if we're going to... And I remember Joe McTighe clearly saying, well, if we're going to do a CD, then we should do it the way the classical labels do it and pack it full. So we, we did whatever the limit was that we could do at that time, which was 78 minutes, I think. It's 69. 69? Yeah, that's how long the record okay. is, yeah. All right, so maybe but I mean, it was up there. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it's up there. And I mean, you know, you look back, there's definitely a couple of bars of music we could have cut from that. But um, so we did that. We recorded with Albini, which was was terrifying and fantastic. And then we put that out with uh, Choke. And then I think <clears throat> between those two things, we booked a tour to the West Coast. So we had either one or two singles out. Um, Joe booked the tour by himself, kind of in the way of saying, hey, Joe, would you book this tour to California? <laughs> oh, you did it? That's great. Let's get in the van and go. So we got in the van. We went to California. We had, you know, we spent, I think, I forget what it was, like seven days in Seattle without a without a show. That's the way things were back then. Yeah. Because now, like now it's, you know, for anyone who's like, uh, you know, under the age of, uh, I don't know, like 30, actually, 30, probably yeah. at this point. Yeah. Anyone who's under 30, who's in a band listening to this will ne will never know the agony of touring back in the nineties where you, there was no Facebook, there was no email, there was no cell phones. You had to like call someone, get them on the line. And if you don't get them on the line, hope their roommate gave them the message or their answering machine, or they decided to call you back. And that's how you book shows back then. And if you were trying to book a, a show at like a known venue, yeah, if you, you know, that was almost you impossible. You had to call what you had to call Tuesday between 11 and one <laughs> yeah. or something like that. It was like Tuesday between two and four. And if, you know, uh, Billy or Susie wasn't there or, the, <laughs> or you didn't get through and the phone was busy, you just didn't get it. That was, uh, the, you know, the Middle East Club in, yeah. in Cambridge. Yeah. That phone was busy. You, you know, you had certain hours to call through, but that <laughs> phone was just busy the whole time. You would just hang out on speed dial and like redo it or whatever. You can never get through to anybody. Yeah. And like, it was that sort of like, you know, we'll call you. you yeah, 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 definitely. We'll get in touch with you somehow. Yeah. yeah. You know? and, at the, and at the same time, there were, you know, professional bookers who had a lock on the place in the first place. So even if you got through, you know, well, we're going to be, we're going to try to be in the area. What would really work for us is, <laughs> is, is Thursday night. Well, on Thursday night, we have a ska band every Thursday <laughs> yeah. night. So that's not going to, well, could we open for the ska band? No, you can't open <laughs> for the ska band because they bring their own opening ska band. And that's that's what it was like. It was it was uh, it was a beautiful trip. I mean, I wouldn't give it up. But in, I think we played five gigs in two weeks, or something like that. We drove from Ohio to Seattle to L.A. You know, or the other way around. It was just nuts. We got a little bit better at doing it ourselves later on, but that first one was rough. Did you guys ever work with an agent, or you did it all yourself? No, we just um, even when I had even when I had. You know the name and number, and maybe had met people who were agents. I mean, there was, I don't want to. I don't want to name names because I don't want to badmouth people. But um, there were, you know, booking agencies in Chicago. We thought, well, we you know we're 
on a label. It's based out of Chicago. Maybe we could work with these people. The label couldn't get us hooked up with them. We couldn't get hooked up with them. There are people in New York who just would laugh, which looking back on it now, I understand that more. It's, you know, a, a band sounding like, like us coming from the Midwest trying to talk to these people in New York. There's just a complete mismatch. There's no common ground. Um, but that's just the way it was. So we booked ourselves... New York back in that era, that. though, man. I remember yeah. it was like, it was almost like you were going to like, you know, like Moscow or something like that. <laughs> it was like this very different city than any of the other cities that you would play in. Like, you know, hostile. Uh, yeah, a you know, gated community. Yeah, just like yeah. this place that you could never really get a legit show in. And if you did get a show, it was like some totally waste of time, you know, set up where you'd spend all this money coming into the city, paying for parking, you know, buying overpriced food, and then you'd have a, a really bad show. You know? mm-hmm. and yeah, or you'd get your gear stolen. <laughs> yeah, or so, yeah, on the more, yeah, the, the extreme side of that. You'd yeah. Van Britt break in, you know, robbed, beaten up, you yeah. know, that yeah. sort of thing. It was all possible. Yeah, it was like the Wild West. <laughs> it was. And, and I sort of feel like a lot of the people that you dealt with, there's a lot more drugs involved than there were in the Midwest. But you weren't aware of it coming into it. You just kind of, when you get here, you kind of say, what is wrong with these people? Like, what is, you know, the, the dial is like not set correctly. Like, what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So we would come here and play at uh, the Under Acme. And um, I remember we, we got our first gig at Coney Island High. And I said, that's great, Coney Island. We'll go to Coney Island. Oh, it's in the middle of the city. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, what was it like working with Albini during that era? Because that was like, you know, he was... He was kind of peaking in a way. Yeah, that was like pretty. That was like you know the early to mid nineties, which yeah. is like time, really. You know. I mean, I don't. I don't want to say that he's peaked or anything. My, you know, my hat's still off to him as an engineer. But it, what I mean by that is, at that time, I think he was probably his his publicity was peaking. Mm-hmm. Um, this was right before the first album was was before he did Nirvana, and the second album was right after. So, and I don't want to, you know talk too much about his his side of things but there's definitely a difference in the in the house where we recorded at the beginning i think he had just moved to the house where we recorded he was unsure about his relationships with his neighbors he you know so he was telling us to play cool while we were there um and i think he he just sort of had more starting up a new business worries whereas the second one the phone wouldn't stop ringing, mm-hmm. you know. Um, the Nirvana album had come out, and there was a lot of controversy about his mix versus what had happened to it after that. I think there were... Uh, maybe his mixes have surfaced now. And they yeah, hadn't. they did when they just reissued it, yeah. Yeah, and they hadn't then or something like that. I wasn't aware of that controversy. What was... Uh, so like <clears throat> He delivered a mix of... In utero. In utero... And I think um, maybe the label vetoed it or something. The, the label d- did something else to it. They either they either re- they did something else to it. And I forget I forget what. And I think maybe Heart Shape Box is something that he actually yeah, did the, the mixes for. The new the new it, reissue of it kind of like unravels it all, and it's sort of all there. I, I wouldn't want to like misspeak because I think it, I think it was last year that they just put it out. But yeah, yeah. I, I think I think you can hear like all the different versions of it. Oh wow. On that, and then there's like a letter that Albini wrote to them anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 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 it, 
had Cobain killed himself yet? I don't know. Well, like when yeah. you guys were there? Yeah. I don't know. It was probably, I mean, it was, you know. You I, were, he, he had. Lost Nation Rose would, would be 94, which is when he killed himself. Right. So I think he, he might have just, he killed yeah. himself on my birthday. Wow. Remember that. Um, and he, that, that might have happened. So I think, you know, conversation about the whole subject was a little bit muted. But at the same time, I mean, whatever. It was still, for us, it was rock star heaven. I mean, uh, the frogs came in. Well, we were, the frogs came in to the studio and like chatted with Albini and left. And I said, who's that? He said, oh, it was the frogs. And then someone else came in. He said, oh, yeah, you can borrow my, you know, whatever it happened to be. It's downstairs. The guy went by. He said, who's that? Oh, it was so-and-so from Slint. And I can't remember who it was. And, you know, but it was all like, it was super cool. It wasn't, you know, nobody was like exploding with glee about it it just was happening right in front of your right. face um so that was that was really nice it was a nice feeling and you know the stuff sounded great and of course he's albini so it's he's he's saying where do you want this tape splice and then he's splicing the kick drum in front of our eyes um he's having very uh you know opinionated discussions with us about how the kick drums will sound up to a certain point and then he would just say all right neil it's your your fucking kick drum you just if you want it to sound like that you can have it sound like that to your baby and then he would step back and whatever so we learned a lot too so on touring back then the uh you know typically what kind of bands do they put you guys on on you know packages with like when you you know like when you roll into a town you know because we didn't we didn't we had it's it's hard to overstate how bad our luck was with all that. I mean, were you were touring at this time too, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. I was. That's why I, I want to impress on people how, like, you know, once again, you know, I, some of the best formative, amazing things in my life, but also how incredibly difficult and at times miserable and like soul crushing the whole experience was in like 1994. Just and just bizarre. Yeah, just bizarre. Just, bizarre. Yeah. just utterly bizarre. Like we played at this one place that happened to be a sports bar and the band after us happened to dress up as what did, what were they dressed up as? Women. They were dressed up as women or clowns and they were they had like a we're going to the beach theme in their bands, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like songs about that. Um, another one that really sticks out, and this is after after Neil left, and this was with Will. <clears throat> we were still out there doing it. We were in somewhere in Kansas, not not near where you live, um, or Missouri, but but somewhere else in Kansas. And we came up to this place, you know, and it's like a roadside shack. There's not. It's a single building <laughs> in a parking lot, and we pull up. We talk to the guy. It's Tuesday night, and it's the pool tournament night. Right. So we're saying, so all these people, this is a pretty good crowd, but they're all here to play pool against each other. No one here wants to hear us. They do not want to hear us. And we were trying to tell the bartender or the owner or the booker or whoever it was, and he just didn't care. So finally, he said, well, if you want to get paid, you have to play. And we were playing at that point for probably 60 bucks. So uh, Will and I got up on stage and just improvised whatever. Like, I think we played Immigrant Song. <laughs> We played, and I played and sang. We played a, just a bunch of stuff. And then, you know, and at the end of it, some woman comes running out of the crowd and grabs me and gives me a big smooch because they're all drunk as, you know, coyotes, and then runs back in, and we got our 60 bucks, and we filled up the tank, and we left. 
I mean, yeah, you know, you know, it's in. Well, I mean, I, I guess I w- was just going to say, like, seeing them around then, you know, I think it's funny because the, the, most of the cross shows that I saw, there were f- between, you know, maybe 10 would be a high number at some of them. Maybe yeah. there were, I mean, and like, you know, some of them, it was like, there was one show that they played in Lawrence, Kansas, where my friends and I were there and we were like, you know, 1670 at the time, we couldn't get into the venue and like like the bass player Zach and it's like they were like looking out at us looking in but wait that was that place was also wasn't that place mostly a, a video arcade yeah the replay lounge <laughs> in Lawrence, Kansas. Yeah, oh yeah yeah, the yeah the replay yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but I mean I guess with the big window yep. yeah yeah, yeah. I, I think it's just interesting though like how you can play a show it's like you can play a show for five people but then like maybe one of those people you know I mean you, you can have your mind blown at a show like that in a way that's different than if there was a lot of, I'm not saying like, I'm glad that people weren't showing up for the cross shows, but it's just, it's an interesting thing that happens when there's that kind of like a. Oh, I agree. As as an audience, as an audience member, you know, I've seen like unsane play in front of like five people and just destroy harder than they ever have in front of five people. than when I saw them like opening for uh, like helmet or something like that, you know, and uh, but I guess the, some of the the environment during that era was I mean what what was going on in the early nineties? There was death metal, you know, <laughs> which was like you know pretty massive. Like shows would be big. Punk and hardcore really weren't that big during that era. It no, was like hardcore like, pretty much died out, really. Yeah. Uh, and then there was this emerging sort of like you know independent rock scene, like indie rock scene that would you know you would. I'm using the word the term indie rock but stuff that was like on like Amphetamine Reptile on Touch and Go uh, you know Merge you Mm -hmm. know like Mm -hmm. Mute Records like all that sort of stuff and that stuff was still like there was definitely a scene for that but in some ways Craw was not a death metal band (laughs) they weren't like Slint you know they weren't one of the few hardcore punk bands around so there was like this sort of, you know, uh, crack that you guys sort of fell into that a lot of bands, you know, um, a lot of, there, there were, there were several bands that, like, there's another band from Boston called La Gratona, which you guys yeah, played yeah. with. Yeah, of course. Yeah, know, Dan's old band. Really, yeah. yeah, Andy Donheiser, yeah. like a Taz, you know, yeah. Colin, yep. good old friends of mine. Absolutely. And Taz's yeah. expression was, you know, too smart for the dumb kids and too dumb for the smart kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? That's so that that comes that applies to Craw, I feel like in that in that era. Yeah. Um, wait, are you from Boston? Is that where you? No, came? I lived there for a number of years. Okay, I like grew up outside that. of Boston. Oh, okay. Yeah. What, what town? Uh, Needham. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, I knew a girl from Needham actually when I was in college. Oh, here we go. <laughs> 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 who, who? You can add this. We, I'm not, we can talk about it later. But, uh, but uh, uh, yeah. You know. Um, no, and that's exactly true. And it's, you know, La Gratona. Then you'd start to, finally, you'd start to meet these other bands. And I mean, I think the other thing about it is that it, for, for us in Craw, I mean, Joe's a little bit older, but for me and Rocky, um, Chris was what, a year older. Um, Zach, we were, we were pretty young and we had also been doing it, you know, well or poorly, whatever, for a while. So by the time we finally 
you know, put out that first record, that felt like some vindication. By the time we put out the second record, it felt like, well, this, you know, is this a, a record that we really like, and it's out there. This is great. But you would still go out on the road, and it would just be a desert. It would just be, you know, golf clapping, thunderous silence. And then we would finally start to meet people like La Gratona, or we would finally, um, you know, the Dazzling Kill Men. We met them, and we, we were friendly with them. I'm trying to think of... Glaze Baby, I think. Glaze Baby was a little bit later. later. Season of Risk. Season of Risk and Glaze Baby. And that was definitely... Meeting those guys was definitely like, okay, you know, we, we toured with Glaze Baby for a while. And it was like, you know, things aren't any better out here on the road, but this is lifting our spirits. You know, these guys have been doing this in their own backwards way as long as we have, and, and they know the ropes, and we're we're going to be out there doing this together. And it just was... It made things, you know. It made going to the the Waffle House every day, um, and eating eating grits every day a little more uh, palatable uh, and entertaining. Were there any cities along the way that, like, you felt might you know might have got it a little bit more than you know? I mean, I'm I'm sure like playing in you know Chicago or Minneapolis would be better than playing you know like Newark, New Jersey or something like that. No, it's funny actually. The this place that they got it the most was. Uh, either Louisville, Kansas City, uh, or do I want to say Kansas yeah, City? Kansas City yeah. yeah, Louisville um, or Kansas City, um, or maybe Boston because of La Gratona and and Glaze Baby. Uh, half of their their kind of crew mm-hmm. was from there, um, but Chicago and well Minnesota. Even though Joe's from Minnesota. I think we played there once. We played, and I was just thinking about this today. We played at the Seventh Street Entry. Uh, it was the middle of summer. It was nice and hot. Rocky got really sick, and we're sitting in the parking lot of the Seventh Street Entry. And I don't, do you remember the, there were the murals yeah. of Prince and mm-hmm. the stars and all? This. So there's this crazy kind of fake Hollywood, you know, <laughs> painted on signage of like we're proud of our rock stars sort of thing. And we're about to play where Hooskadoo came from and all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. And, um, it's like, Landspeed Record is live. At, you know, so it's like that stuff was going through our heads and Rocky's singing the, you know, back of the van puking his guts out. And then we went in and played to three people. So that was that. And Chicago, I feel like, was just, they were too smart for us and too uh, together. Their scene was, was way more fully formed than than anything that had really happened in Cleveland. So they looked at us, a band from Cleveland, and said, you know, they're from, they're basically like, they just, you know, burrowed out of a tree. They're from, like, nowhere. Um, and we would play with people in Chicago, and it just, it just would not land. Um, so it's, but then we went to Louisville, and... Um, and we're, there's another town down there that we played in, and and those guys just loved us and like were all over it and got into it and and understood. It. And I wish I could remember a couple of names because I know that there's uh, guys either here or still down there that are still you know like you doing things like this mm-hmm. um, that went on to be you know valid um, whatever commentators, musicians, etc. Um, from that from Louisville from that area. Yeah, Louisville's a little bit, uh, you know, there's, they, they, there's no pretense down there, I think. You know, the, the people in, in Louisville are a little bit more down-to-earth than in some of the, you know, larger cities, I think. You know, like, you know, living here in New York. Yeah. And, 
you know, places like L.A. or, you know, Chicago where there's so many opportunities to check out other things. Mm -hmm. And there's a little bit more of like, uh, yeah, I hate to use the word sophistication, but that's the word that comes to mind when people have a little bit more of like a wider net that they grab things in. Mm -hmm. And I feel like some, some of the cities, because of that, because they have, they can have access to all these shows and whatnot when there's like some, you know, dark horse from another lesser known town. Right. They might be a little closed off to that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think honestly, they're a little bit, people would be a little bit threatened if, if they thought we were worth anything, they would be a little bit threatened. And if they were just confused by us or put off, then, you know, they could, they could just wear us off. And I mean, for all that Hank saw a couple of good shows, we would have just awful, awful shows where, you know, our, our gear would overpower the PA. Um, someone would be literally sick. You know what I mean? Just, just like horrible, horrible shows. We had to learn all about, we had to learn all about pacing by just playing terrible shows after terrible shows and finally getting to the point of saying, if we play three songs in a row, that'd be good. And yeah. Then take a break. Then yeah. play three songs in a row, then take a break. Um, or these so, guys just try to sprint to the end? Just like bang it out? Or? No, in the beginning it was like, okay, we're going to play 14 songs. We're going to tune up between every song. Oh, okay. No yeah. one's going to talk to the audience. <laughs> you know, just, just the worst. Just like hammering through the fingernails, painful torture. So we could, we could really just blow out a room and just clear it out. So as, as well as, you know, a place like Chicago being, um, being able to be much more picky – we could also just get up there and just suck. You know, it's like we had that going for us, too. Well, I, I guess I was just going to say you were talking about this whole thing about, like, who are the contemporaries. And, like, I think I was thinking about that a lot at the time because I, again, like, I came to Crawl right from stuff that you could see on MTV, you know, yeah. like. You, you were a metalhead, too. I was, yeah, I was listening. I mean, I was Danzig and Morbid Angel yeah. and all this stuff. And, like, and that stuff was, like, mainstream compared to something like Craw because it was actually on the TV. You know, I, but I guess what I was going to say was that I heard Craw, became completely obsessed with it, and then, obviously, you know, once you've listened to those records so many times that you got to just take a break and listen to something else, you're like, oh, there's got to be something else. And then the, it, was, it was, like, this experience of, like, the, I think it was reading an interview with Rocky that told me about Dazzling Kilman. And so then I got the Dazzling Kilman record. I'm like, this is fucking incredible. And then, and then there was Season to Risk and a couple of local bands, but it was like there wasn't, like I, I discovered all this other cool stuff that I'm still into to this day, like Jesus Lizard, Slant, Fugazi, whatever. Love all that music, but like it, it always, it almost seemed like I discovered the furthest and most extreme and innovative thing first, and then I was sort of always, there was, I could never find anything that went past or that equaled just the level of like. Because you know you you and I I think have talked about before too you know you, you know you played shows opening for like Jesus Lizard and bands like this and like like you were saying the scene it's it's the same scene in a sense but like I mean the level of like demand that is placed on you like listening to some of that cr- I mean it's not it's not like rock and roll you know what I mean it's like I wouldn't I don't want to say I, I guess I keep saying progressive rock but I don't want to like saying like it sounds like yes or something but the level of like it's just trying to take it the form further. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's asking a lot more of you in terms of like stick with us here and there's something happening, but it's, we're not necessarily going to. Well, there was never really, from my, my, well, my impression, there was never really the promise of like any kind of like, like payoff. You know what I mean? Like when you listen to Craw. Well, I, I, I think there's like, you know, there, I mean, to me there was, obviously, because <laughs> I have all right. you guys here in my house and we're yeah. talking about the band. Right. You know? But 
you know, there's like people who, um, you know, maybe their, their, their taste in music leans more towards something that's like a little bit easier to digest. Yeah. And for those types of people, there isn't really any kind of, you know, payday in the music. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you, 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 I think you can't get, you can't put it on and do anything with it other than just like engage with it. There would, there would be no point. Whereas like the Jesus lizard, you could kind of put on at a party and people, and, I, and I'm not, that's not to take away from that music at all, but it's, it's rock and roll. Yeah, there's like a groove, yeah. and, you know. But I think, yeah, I mean, I've had, you know, 20 years to, to ponder this. I think that part of it is that those guys were, I mean, you know, Jesus Lizard is absolutely one of my favorite bands and, and one of my favorite live experiences and all that. Um, those guys had, they had a, 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 a more clear idea of what they were shooting for. They had, they had less things they were pulling out of their hat. Mm -hmm. Um, and because of that, they were able to strengthen all those elements. And, you know, they'd all been in those other bands prior, whereas we were we were being, someone called us uh, maximalists. And at mm -hmm. first I was like, I'm not sure I know what that means. And then I thought, well, it means that we're, we're, we're take, trying to take all these different ideas and, and reconcile them and kind of build this, you know, superhuman machine. Whereas something like the, someone like the Jesus Lizard or... Um, or the Dazzling Killmen, you know, they would operate with fewer ideas yeah. and, and present them with more clarity. And therefore, they would present those single ideas more forcefully, which, you know, in retrospect, my hat's off to them. That's just not the aesthetic that we were, uh, that we were going for at the time. We were a five-piece band with an independent vocalist. You know, it's like there was, there was just always a lot going on. So. Well, yeah, and I think the the five piece thing I think is really important. We haven't touched on that, but I think that that too is something that you know the fourth craw record. I, I love the fourth craw record, but but like to me, I got to know the band as, a, and that's that's a four piece. Yeah. To me, I got to know the band as a five piece, and that was crucial to the to the way that stuff operated. And you know, Dave was saying, you know, having an independent vocalist, but also Dave's role on guitar. I, mean, I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I mean, they they really did have a pretty clear. If you want to break it down in a very you know, kind of dumbed down way, like a rhythm and lead, you know, but, but Dave's guitar playing added this whole other element of like texture that was just like, it just made it so different than some of that. Other, like it, it was, there were so many, there was so many, like so much tightness and like riffing in that music, but like the X factors of Joe and Dave to me are like the thing, like that tension between the insane tightness of like Rocky and Neil on one hand. And then just the like, whatever you know was counteracting that from from joe and dave w was really what made that music like just sort of explode for me it was just like this like there's so much to check out you know in that in in, in the composition you know i mean and joe I, I don't know we should probably meant just sort of talk about joe i mean you know because yeah. you and i talked about it i mean i've never i've never heard anybody I mean, it's it just like, I don't need to this day. It's like, what, what is that? Like, where is that coming from? Like, who would be another front man you would compare it to? And like lyrically, I mean, I don't, I don't even really know where to start with it, but I just found it completely enthralling. Like, I think the vocals probably drew me in. I think the heaviness drew me in, but the vocals are, were like, you could spend a lot of time just like, I think the way you put it was like, you could tell this guy, I think you said that you could tell this guy had some sort of story he was trying to yeah, tell. And that's narrative. like putting it, that's putting it. You know, that that would be like the most minimal way you could put it. But I mean, I don't know if you want to just discuss like his role or. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, Joe. Um, 
Yeah, there's there's a lot to say. I mean, I I for me the reason that I'm really glad Hank that you're doing this is actually a lot of it is because of Joe because I feel that he was and I know you're saying about this about the band in general but um I feel like Joe is not given his given a chance to uh, be talked about in the right way. He wasn't given a chance to be like put on the right place in, on the the shelf of vocalists. Yeah. You know, um, he's he's a brilliant guy. He, um, like I said, he was a musician. Uh, he he could play oddly. I think he played the tuba yeah. in his <laughs> band. You know, his, his high school band. He also played the bass in a marching band. He could play jazz bass. He he knew his music. He could read music. I think he could read music. Am I going too far with that? I'm pretty sure he could read music, um, which is kind of a rarity in our circle. But with his, he kind of flipped a switch and said, I want to bring some of these ideas to, to singing. I want to bring uh, ideas from, you know, progressive literature. Um, I want to bring some Burroughs cut-up ideas. I want to bring... Um, I want to bring the news into it, you know, but and and the the trick to me was that no matter how much he would shy away from it or, or not want to talk about it, his, the emotion that he would deliver was huge. It was intense. And I think I think sometimes that it could almost it would it would scare people or it would be so intense that it would seem cartoonish, like here's just another guy screaming. And and this guy, I don't even, I even more don't know what he's talking about, yeah. you know? Um, so it was just, it was a couple, it was a couple of iterations beyond where, where most people are, are comfortable listening. It, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, I love the Beatles and I, I still listen to them and I sing their songs to my son, you know, cause they're, they're safe, right? They wrote their lyrics to be as safe as possible. Yeah. yeah very literal. Yeah, and, yeah. and they're not, they're, they shy away from anything that would, would involve, you know, incur censorship. You know, they're very straightforward. Uh, they're very innocent. And, and Joe's was, it was, it was just, I mean, you would hate that I'm even bringing this into the conversation. It was just the inverse of that. You know, it was to bring as much in as possible, have it be as explicit if he wanted it to be or as specific as he wanted it to be. Um, so. Yeah, the specificity was was I I wasn't really prepared for that. I think I was used to like the tropes of what what was happening in metal in terms of what was being sung about. I was used to aggression. Yeah, I was used mm -hmm. to anger and all the and I was you know in comfortable ways. You don't realize how calcified it is until you hear something that's not that. But you know I was responding to like the screaming. But then it's like why is he talking about like you know like uh, you know a like the song Stomp is what comes to mind. Like he's doing, he's doing a song about, you know, this environmental activist who was, who, who an act of terrorism was committed against her. Yeah, and, I think they, they killed her with a nail bomb. Yeah. Right. And, and so he's basically telling the story of this, like this kind of like renegade, like bomb bomber character. And it makes you want to go look up, like, who is this? What is he talking about? And like every song was like that. Mm -hmm. Every song was like, coming from some germ of an idea, like, like Dave was saying, like, you know, I take it a news story or something like that. And, and still, you know, there's not an interview with Joe on the record. It, it sort of remains to be seen whether he and I will talk, but whether, whether we do or not, like it, the intrigue of it 
You know, like that's to me like like you 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 hear these little fragments and you're like, what did he just say? Like like you know, and that's like throughout all three of these. And there's these three songs that uh, you you wrote the uh, the three short guys on Matt Mutter's Surge, right? Yeah, the the one the one minute guys. Yeah, so there are these this trilogy of like very short songs on Matt Mutter's Surge, and like there are you know the lyrics are have to do with you know I don't want to like misstate it or something, but it's like this man who learns like ingest plastic and like he's I mean I I. I it's just this crazy, like, scientific stuff that gets down at this level where you're like, what is going on? And you're just like, and the fa- and then, then not just the lyrics, but the delivery. You know, the fact that there's, like, Dave was saying, passion and emotion, and then there's the intellect. And it's just like the music. It's like, it's like this super brain. Like, where is this coming from? You know what I mean? So I don't know. He I mean, was just, he was, I mean, he, he was open. Yeah, there's the news. There's also found... Um, I mean, there's that great magazine. Is it found? Yeah. Or I think, oh yeah. 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 So um, there's that magazine, but but he was doing that either concurrent with or before that, whatever. I mean, not just you know, there's there's a full magazine devoted to. Is all I'm saying. But he, you know, picking up uh, pieces of of paper off the street that were letters and incorporating the letters um, uh, to the child readers. Obviously, a large part of that is from a children's book. Um, but then it's interspersed with. A found letter from one guy to another guy about their relationship and someone is dying of AIDS. And it just, it's so, it's all so like, it, it is, it's, it's massively surprising. It's like a huge left hook with, with all those things. Um, and I used to, I used, to, you know, when we were, and this has to do with frequencies, but kind of my goal, and, and this is, it comes through in the beginning of the, the first album. Like um, the very beginning of the first song is it's we're we're taking up the whole frequency range as best we can. Yeah, you know, um, like it's all the band playing at once from like the lowest to the highest notes, and we're all we're all there. Um, and I would say to Joe that we're we're trying to operate on the visceral, you know, which is why we would be so loud and so so heavy, so have all the low frequencies. Mm-hmm. And then we would try to be operating on the emotional, which is why we'd be giving you stuff to think about in your music and in the lyrics. And then we would try to be operating on the emotional, which would just come through in, in especially in Joe's delivery, and hopefully in like you know our commitment to delivering on stage. So it's, we would try to stack all those three things up. Um, and and then Joe would would do all that on his own. Mm-hmm. One of the things like that jumped out right away when I first started listening to you guys back in the nineties was just the technical sort of proficiency that everyone in the band had. Are any of you guys are you guys all self taught or did some of you guys go to like school? Did you did any of you play jazz? Did you you know? Because like frankly. The first time I saw you guys, you guys were probably the best musicians I'd seen play that style of music. So, you know, so what's the deal, Dave? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, the the most the most uh, accomplished educationally would be Neil Neil Chastain. Um, he, I mean, he's just he's a very accomplished musician. He was going to music school when we met him. Uh, then he was going to music school at Cranbrook Academy in Michigan. Um, and we were still playing with him, and then he moved back. I think I'm getting that straight. Mm-hmm. So he had been playing music, you know, from the get-go. He could play whatever you wanted him to play. He he had a huge, you know, deep knowledge of of uh, of the history of music, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
and then from there, uh, Chris Aponius, I think, had just been playing in punk bands since he was, you know, old enough to pick up a bass. So he he taught himself that way. Um, Rocky and I both had, I mean, I started taking less, guitar lessons when I was eight. And I took them until I was 12. And I was just getting into, I was just really getting into learning jazz stuff. And mm-hmm. then, but, you know, I was 12. And I was kind of like, I got to. I got to step away from this. And I put the guitar down for a couple of years um, before I went to school and picked it up again. Um, and I, I'm not, I'm not saying that I was turning into a great jazz player or anything like that. It's just, that's what we were starting to learn about or I was starting to be taught. And I think Rocky took some lessons probably around to the same level, maybe a little, maybe a little less in terms of taking guitar lessons, but Rocky can also do that thing where he can drop the needle on the record and go, Oh, that's what they're playing. And just, you know, just just take it off the record and learn it and remember it and practice it and riff it. Um, So he has that amazing ear and like the ability to translate that to his hands. Um, And Zach, I don't, you know what? I don't don't know what Zach's excuse is. He's just a a fucking monster. (laughs) You know, it's like, really, I don't, maybe he played, maybe he took lessons. Maybe he played in the school band, probably a little of both, but he just, he's, he's a monster. He can play bass like a motherfucker. He can play guitar. Um, he showed up like into the band, like knowing all the music, right? He showed up knowing all the music. Yeah. And when he showed up, he's, how, how much younger than me is he? Maybe, maybe three years. But back then, you know, if you're 23 and the other guy's 20, that's kind of a big drop. Yeah, it's a huge difference yeah. in age at that point. Yeah, exactly. So yeah. Chris had to step out. He went off um, and, you know, he stepped out. He knew that he wanted to go and start a family. And he has a lovely, beautiful family. Um, and he was on his way to doing that. And um, so our our record label, Choke, hooked us up with Zach somehow. And I, I honestly don't know how, but they're the ones who hooked him up hooked us up with them. Um, I don't know how. Maybe they put an ad. I wish I could remember that. Zach would obviously remember. So he just sat down and learned the first album. And he learned it. And we he showed up and we said, well, these are you know the five songs off of that album that we're still playing. He said, okay, great. And we just sat down and played them. And that was it. And he was in. Um, so we missed Chris a lot, but Zach was a great guy. And, you know, is still a great guy and it was just it was a really positive thing um and then joe yeah joe lived in a a fairly small town in minnesota where you kind of had to make your own fun Mm -hmm. and a lot of his fun was playing music so how do you guys find will will scharf how did we find will i think will was like kind of it would have been hard not to find Will. <laughs> you know Will, right? Oh, yeah, I know Will really well. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, I mean, and at that point when we found Will, he wasn't the drummer that he is now, you know? I mean, he, he just he just wasn't. Um, and we were impressed with him then. So he was playing in, what, Hucklebuck, maybe? Um, that I don't know. Yeah, I think he was playing in Hucklebuck and some other Cleveland bands and... He showed up and just beat the fuck out of his drums, and we were like, "All right, that's fine." <laughs> that's something I remember. He like Will first entered, like I first became conscious of Will when I saw Craw play back in like you know ninety whatever right. ninety four or something. But I don't know anything prior to that, and you know, obviously, you know, Keel Hall, all those other stuff he's doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but but he was a jazz been. drummer though. Right, he was a jazz. I think it's more like he was like a. I don't think he went around playing jazz sets, and I could be wrong. 
I mean, he's, you know, he's he's also not the guy to sit down and, and say, you know, well, for, I did this, then I did yeah. this. You know, it's not. Um, so I don't think he was playing as a jazz guy much. I think it's more like he just loved jazz and, and liked to play jazz. Um, and he was playing rock and, and et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah, I mean, if you listen to Matt Mutter's search, that that's there. You know, and, I mean, that's such, it, that, that's why it was, it was, it's so fascinating. And, you know, these three records that we're talking about with the sets, like you have the first two with Neil, who was just like this amazingly, you know, tight type of player. And then, and then, and then Will, who just brought like a totally different energy to it. And, and Matt Mutter's surge is like, you know, it's just a different, like equally awesome, you know, thing, but, but rhythmically it's just like, I don't know Will just has like a totally different energy. Yeah, and and and, and, sure. and just you know that the, it was like phase two of of a, of a of a great idea, you know, which fell apart in the in the transition from phase one to phase two. I mean, we had some shows where we were just like, "Wow, what what just happened?" Like I think, and you reminded me of this Neil left the band um, right before we had a fairly big tour booked. I think, and I think I we we like crammed some songs down Will's throat, and then we went out on the road and just. And just fell apart on stage like for a while, and then we finally started to get together as a as that five piece. Yeah. Are you doing anything musically now, Dave? Not really. Um, no. Uh, no. It kind of got to a point where I, I I have a kid. Um, I'm married. I have a kid. I have a job, and it kind of got to a point, especially living in New York, where just the balance. I couldn't make those things balance. Um, Although I think the climate has changed at this point that if I decided to do something, then no one would really look at me and go, who's that old fucker up there, you know? So it, it's, who knows, when, it's it's funny how fast kids change and how the situation changes. There might be more time to do something like that in the near future. One of the things you were, you were talking about earlier about finding these people to play in the band, too, and, you know, it's hard enough now to find the right guy to be in the band, but back then when there was no... You know Craigslist or you know Facebook or anything like that, where people you can even, especially playing something you know marginal, yeah. you know that that has like a a very specific vibe to it. How incredibly hard it was to even just find anyone who ha- even had the same reference points that you did. Yeah, you know. Yeah, exactly. Because I remember trying to form bands in the '90s, and you know, looking for there was always a bass player you never find a bass player <laughs> and you know guys would show up that you know like we would be very specific in the right. stuff that we were looking for and like some guy from like an oi band showed up one time and I was like <laughs> let's do it man let's try you know and like we're afterwards like he was a good player but afterwards we were just talking about you know like stuff like yeah. music and there was just no common ground and I think yeah. a lot of times people would just show up because they just want to be in a band you know yeah yeah they have the gear. Might they have equipment in a van or something, yeah. you know, PA or whatever, and they just show up looking to play. But I, I think in a way, though, like that, that, that element of craw was so interesting because, again, like I was used to these bands who presented themselves like they were some kind of gang or something like that. Everyone looked the same and it was this kind of dress and this. But craw was like, you couldn't get anything from them from how they looked. And that, like it was this thing of like, who are these guys? You know what I mean? It, it was like there was nothing given away on the surface and every every one of you seemed like you were sort of on a different wavelength we were on pretty different wavelengths which I mean, was great you know? yeah i mean it could be great or on a, a bad night it could be really negative because yeah. we could be on very different wavelengths <laughs> it could be on just hugely different wavelengths but i think that we had all for, for whatever reason you're talking about you know the list of influences yeah. like between 
the I don't know I guess that well all right here's how the band started this is the way the band started so I I had the the great honor of going to a, a, a private school for two years right because I basically was failing out of my public high school so I went to the private school where all almost all anyone listened to was the Grateful Dead so for two years the Grateful Dead just pounded into my head so I come to Case and the first guy that I see at Case is Chris Aponius who, and I never saw him wear this shirt again, is carrying a skateboard, right, which I also skated a little bit, um, or maybe I didn't yet, but he's carrying a skateboard, so I knew he was down with the punk thing and he had a shaved head, but he's wearing a Grateful Dead t-shirt. So I was like, all right, that's, I can talk to that guy. Yeah. So he and I are hanging out. We go to a, a, a meet and greet, like a student meet and greet mm-hmm. for the campus, and there's Rocky, and what shirt was he wearing? <laughs> was he, he was either wearing... A corrosion of conformity shirt that he made himself, or a Melvin shirt that he made himself, and Chris was like, "Well, let's go talk to that guy," <laughs> and that was it. And then the way we met Joe was we went to the cafeteria and we went to sit with Rocky, and when we got to the guy we thought was Rocky, it was Joe, and we were like, "Why do you guys? How come you're dressed exactly the same?" And they just happened to be dressed exactly the same. And they're like, "Oh, well, we know each other." And so, bam, that was that was it. And then, like, once the cards were on the table, there was all, there was Killdozer, there was all the the Albini related stuff, there was all the Touch and Go stuff, um, yeah, there was all the the heavy stuff. I mean, Rocky loves Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Chris does too. We went and saw, we would go and see Slayer and whoever together, you know, all that stuff. So it was all, it just made it a nice X, and we could all like live at the center of that X. It was interesting that time of, you know, in that particular time, there was like how many great bands actually were were based out of the Midwest. Yeah. You know, you know, just you mentioned Killdozer. Yeah. You know, Tar. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. Hammerhead. Yeah. You know, a lot, so many just great bands from that region of the country. You know. Yeah, I, I just always it it just kind of felt really cool to like be from there at that time. You know, obviously later you discover like. You know, DC, which had this really, you know, they were lucky enough to have Discord, which which presented and preserved everything really well. But, you know, just in Kansas City, where I was from, you know, there were these bands like Boy's Life and Giant's Chair and Quitter's Club and Season of Risk and this and that. And, 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 like, there were these bands, like, it was kind of at the intersection of, like, I guess what people were starting to call emo, like that really, but that really early where it was still really weird and mm-hmm. heavy and, like, crossing over with what would later be called math rock and post-hardcore i don't really know but just like really like just like interesting stuff that like yeah. i still listen to and I'm like what the hell like what is that stuff you know what i mean like and, and it still doesn't there's not really and it's very it is very regional like the kansas city bands didn't sound like any of the other bands and then like you know dazzling kilman from st louis didn't sound like still any, don't sound yeah like <laughs> yeah like you, you you like a lot of like un uncopyable stuff and i think that's one of the funny things now when i think about this a lot of times when people are trying to resurface these things like you know this band was such a big influence on x y and z and like the the fact of the matter is i i don't think crawl was a big influence on a lot of people like just in the sense of like that it's something where you can hear it like you're not gonna like it it, it couldn't be that you couldn't t- you couldn't mine anything out of it because it's too specific and too peculiar but it's like, similar to like the swans influencing people now because yeah. when the swans were doing their most abrasive music mm-hmm, no one yeah even cared about them mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. but now like there's bands you know i mean even like you know godflesh 
Yeah. 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 So God flesh is the direct disciple of the swans. Mm-hmm. Really. Yeah. But, you know, then, then there's people that have, you know, oh, yeah, I, I've been in the swans since like 1985 or something <laughs> like that. You know, meanwhile, like, you know, they've only really been in them for, you know, re- they just discovered those earlier records right. or whatever. But those, I mean, are, those are filth and uh, powerful stuff. Yeah. Man. I hate to say it out loud, but raping a slave. <laughs> uh, it's just in public castration. I remember a friend of mine, one of my good friends, John Wyeth, um, yeah, yeah. got a public castration on, on vinyl. Uh-huh. And we were just like, what? And you know what I mean? It was like that, that thing of like, you know, when the witch has the, has like the book of hexes yeah. in, her, in her house, you're just kind of like, what is this? Uh-huh. John also had a headache, the big black one yeah, with the, with the, the, with vis- the split skull yeah. on it. Yep. And we would just like lay that open and stare at it. <laughs> so crazy. But, you know, that's how I feel like Craw is because, like, a lot of, you know, I know the name comes up with younger people, believe it or not. I don't know. believe that. Well, you know, it does. You know, here and there, it's like someone, I mean, especially I can think of bands like Young Widows and, you know, people, bands I know personally, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're very much influenced by that era. And guys in that band are, are you know, fans and, you know, students of music. Right, right, so right. So they dig deep into what was going on in that time. Mm-hmm. And if you dig deep enough, you'll find that someone mentioned Craw in like a, an interview or something like that. Yeah. You know, and that, and that's, and there you go. It comes like, you know, back to that. That's kind of what I'm trying to do is like bump it up a few levels. So yeah. maybe you don't have to go like, so maybe it's like, you know, cause, cause even a band like Dazzling Kilman, you know, I think like, I think that also has to do with the fact that, that Nick Sakes was playing music and, was you know had more of a presence like online and things like that mm-hmm. and was kind of working himself to preserve the legacy of it. Yeah. Well, they, they had a higher profile at the time. A though. higher profile yeah. at the time, and also, yeah. but but also the, the fortunate enough too to be on a label that was under the Touch and Go umbrella yeah. that yeah, for continuously sure. got distributed yeah. and Skin Graft still exists mm-hmm. and all these kind of things and just for 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 various reasons of I think as you say bad luck like and also Nick had a couple other things going on like Colossomite exactly. and you know even now he has um, yeah, Zadix yeah, yeah. yeah right. Yeah, Sick Bay. There was like stuff that yeah. he's involved with all through that time yeah. period. Yeah, you know? and Darren is still, you know, I mean, it's not he's not really playing any sort of the same type of music, but I think if you kind of compiled all the hit points, he has a a bigger profile. Yeah, because he's doing that stuff with Jim O'Rourke. Yeah. And he just oh, did right. um mm-hmm. and Glenn Kachi. He works and Radio Lab. He just did that. He toured with yeah, Glenn Kachi and Radio Lab. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So those guys are still around, and, yeah. and you know, like. Like Blake Fleming, the drummer, is still doing stuff, and that that, that is one thing about Craw is that like, you know, of the people, well, it's almost like the two drummers are probably the most out there in terms of people who are like playing music like in front. Of- yeah, but like we were talking about, Neil, Neil, Neil is so um, what he's doing is so distanced that yeah. it's it's a kind of a head scratcher that there is right. a connection. Yeah, where so Keelhaul, yeah. Keelhaul in yeah. a way becomes the like the living link yeah, to yeah. it in a, in a certain way. Like the, like the, the, if people were getting into it a little bit later, like and you know I think that Hydrahead thing was huge. You yeah, know? That, because yeah. like that 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 helped a lot. But see, to me. Again, Bodies for Strontium 90 is the end of a very long story, a very compelling end. But, like, to me, whenever someone's like, I love that record, I'm like, yeah, but you gotta, <laughs> you know, yeah. you gotta go all the way, you know. Well, one of the more, one of the more contemporary bands that I listened to, the, from the very first time I listened to them, I was like, you know, Crawl. Oh, yeah. It's well. Oxbow. Oh, okay. Oh, really? <laughs> I, well, yeah. I mean, maybe it's not like they're... I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying... Just, I'm not familiar I mean, with like them. like all defensive and stuff. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm like all uncomfortable now. No, but the, um, no, I'll check them out just because I'm not familiar with them and the little I read seemed to point in different directions. No, no. I, I think that if you listen to, you know, you check out any of their catalog, it, to me it sounds like, you know, 
It has a lot of the same elements. Right. But they, they're an older... I mean, when did they start? Like the early... The late 90s. Oh, late 90s. Yeah. Okay, late okay. 90s. So, yeah. I mean, but they're, you know, they're all guys who are like, you know, like Eugene is like, you know, like an older guy and all yeah. the other guys in the band. You know, but, but Eugene also brings that sort of like literary like vibe to right. it. You right, know, right, like right, 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 right. He's pulling his lyrical content from many different areas and then, you know, his approach is different, you know, and he's like this jacked up like big dude up yeah, on stage yeah. but right know. right right yeah but yeah. and then musically the music i think is still you know i mean it's like pretty technical it has mm-hmm. like a lot of similar elements I'll check them it's out. not as dense as maybe the earlier craw music but you know there's a lot of similarities i think one of the bands that comes to mind we were talking about like how you know sort of hard to digest some of the craw material it was that goes further out than you guys i thought was that band u.s maple oh yeah <laughs> yeah love those guys yeah absolutely man but okay but again shorty right do you know shorty yes yeah okay so they were coming from a much more i mean not, not coming from but they had done a much more uh you know riff oriented straight rock mm-hmm. sort of thing um yeah well that first u.s time. maple record Though it's pretty, like you know, you know, if you if one were to listen to that and not have any background, they'd be like, right. well, these guys just took their instruments and like threw them down the staircase. <laughs> yeah, but that if you listen to that compared to their later material, they sound like rock anthems compared to what they were doing right, towards yeah. the end. Yeah, yeah, they're like, let's just let's just take it apart just a little bit yeah. more, just even more. Yeah, I don't even. They is anyone from that band doing anything? Well, Todd Rittman has a band called the dead rider. I think he was one of the guitar players. And then I think, uh, Mark Shippey maybe had a project. I don't think, I think, wait, yeah. Mark Shippey did have something. Yeah. It, it was called, uh, it was a really cool instrumental band that I'm not going to remember the name uh, of. It was like, like two words. Yeah. Was it the key? Mir- miracle condition, miracle condition. He had a band. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. That okay. was like a the thing that it was like, it's, it's really cool. I don't think enough people heard it, but yeah, I mean, but the weird thing about us maple is they had this like, kind of like theatricality and like almost like absurdism yeah. and humor to it that, yeah, that, they, that yeah. was on a different zone. Yeah. I, I almost like, I almost think about something like Captain Beefheart in a really weird way when I hear them, like just in the fact of like that, that taking things apart thing that you're talking about. Like it, it's, it seems to like point back to that. Whereas like, I don't, yeah. I don't know that I would say that necessarily of Craw, you know, just in the presentation being more like, ominous or serious or yeah but they, yeah they did have that theatricality yeah. where, which is i and especially since they're from chicago i feel like some of that comes from improv theater like your sure accident is yeah. another band that was like at times could be as heavy and just insanely complicated intense as craw but the presentation was not i think there was metal there was metal at the at the heart of craw yeah that, well yeah there's rocky with the, yeah, yeah right yeah. it wasn't there i think that was yeah. that was a little bit of a difference from the chicago bands was those bands like i think what you were saying when you would go up there you were probably you probably felt like the metal outcasts in a way well i think it's it's weird it's just sort of um millie always is trying my wife is always trying to break this down for me because she sees it clearly having seen us for so long because i knew her back then um and seen us in different venues and seen other all the same bands that i have and just that craw had like a certain amount of uh like like non-ironic sincerity yeah that just was you know for a lot of people and at a lot of points it was just totally out of vogue it just was like these guys are really you know what they're they're saying what they mean 
whatever that happens to be, I might not even know, I might not even understand it, but they're not referring to someone else. They're not referring to anything else. They're just, they're just doing it. So I can, I can just ignore them if I want. You know, it's funny you mention that because as much as I do love a lot of those, you know, touch and go bands, um, and that sort of vibe, that is the one thing that actually prevented me from fully embracing like bands like Big Black or whatever. I mean, mm-hmm. I love those bands, but mm-hmm. I love them, but I don't love them as much as I love a band like Hammerhead or something like that, right, you right. know, or a band, you know, like Chokebore, like even a band like Chokebore. Yeah, yeah, like there, there's yeah. like a sincerity in that music too, I think. Yeah. You know, and there's definitely like, and you know, I, I mean, I love, I love Steve Albini. I love Rape Man, you know, Shellac. I have all those records. But I could never fully relate to them because I feel like there is a little bit of that like irony in yeah. the music, you know. Well, there's a, yeah, there's like a distancing. Yeah, and there's yeah, I mean, and especially later, there's some like they definitely would have in jokes. Yeah, yeah. that were that were yeah. in, in their circle, which is you know it's fine. It's just, that's how they operated. Um, but yeah, I hear what you're saying. So you haven't seen uh, any of uh, True Detective, right? It's going to twist that knife. <laughs> no, I have not. I and, and you're up to David. speed on it, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. So should sure I leave? Should I leave the room now? Sunday is, is clear so that so that we can view that. I'm not going to be able time. to see the, the Sunday's episode. Yeah. I'm going to be out of town, yeah, you away put from the, everything. Put the earmuffs. Yeah, on. I'm not talk to anyone. <laughs> it's rough. It's getting hard. We we're talking about that. It's like the chatter is just piling up. Yeah. You know, that that show is having a moment. Yeah. Like people, it, like it's becoming like like the names of the characters are becoming like the memes online. Yeah, I've seen quite a bit of that. Yeah. You know. Um, but yeah, it's. I think it lives up to whatever. Yeah. There'll yeah. be band names, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there'll be some band names. Yeah, Dim Carcosa. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great name for a band. Reggie Ledoux. Reggie Ledoux, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Woody Harrelson, man. Yeah, he's great, absolutely. Well, the thing that's interesting about the whole concept of the show is that each season is a totally different storyline. Yeah. So both these guys might get killed in the last episode yeah, yeah. Or, or worse yeah. you know, or banished. To it's, it's making me sad. I'm going to satanic dimension or something, you know, uh, just like thinking about parting ways with, the, with, with those characters is bumming me out. But Ed TV, they were both in Ed TV. <laughs> oh, were? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Someone was, someone was like, weren't those guys both in Ed TV? Googles it on her phone. Yeah. Ed TV. Huh. But I've never seen, but I think they're both actors though. who People sold really short, maybe like, yeah, like, like they, absolutely. they didn't realize that they were going to like the, the, the Woody Air Harrelson was going to be like one of the best actors yeah. of his generation. Yep. Like maybe a long time ago. And McConaughey people, obviously, cause I think coming up with Days and Confused, like he was associated with that, but that guy is like... He's a badass. He is yeah, so badass. Both of them. They have quietly sort of yeah. put together this like really impressive uh, you know, body of work, I yeah. think, especially in the last few years, you know, and unnoticed by a lot of people. Yeah. You know that they're they're not names that when you think of like you know oh yeah man I love John you know Johnny Depp's amazing you know they're, they're, yeah because you know, Daniel Day Lewis you know yeah, yeah. right but no one really says you know Matthew McConaughey you're like oh you mean the guy from Daisy Confused yeah. you know yeah. but then like Woody Harrelson too like like what, one of my favorite movies just randomly happens to be White Men Can't Jump I don't yeah. really know like what it is about that movie but I just love it and like the, his performance in that movie that's the kind of performance that's just going to be overlooked because it just seems like he's sort of playing himself that kind of the everyman mm-hmm. thing and like it's a funny movie and this and that and it's like you're not going to look at that as like great art but like that's Woody, Woody Harrelson's been moving in that zone have you seen Rampart? yes no, yes no, that's an interesting movie it's pretty 
pretty like gritty. Yeah, it, <laughs> it has like that James Elroy like trip going on too. Yeah. You know, like it's dark, like very yeah, very dark, very very like L.A. Yes, you know. Yeah, I loved it. I thought that was great. There's no real, you know, story no. really. It's just like a a, a, a study right. of this guy. Yeah, it's and, I, and that's some of my favorite movies and books where it's not really nothing. Almost nothing happens. Like yeah, one yeah, incident yeah. happens, and then it, nothing's resolved. And there's just you know, sort of like a sketch of this guy's life, you know, yeah. and his like what his reality's like. It's it's really cool, you know. So as far as this Kickstarter campaign. Um, you know, when is this thing going to be, uh, you know, do, do you know the, do right you know now? The, the I've, I've just, in the, I've just in the past couple of weeks gotten to the point where I feel comfortable putting a date on it. It's March 24th. I assume that people will be listening to this after that, you know, um, right, you want, you maybe you want to hit that again. Then we'll, we'll like, I'll edit that out. So when this comes out, oh, okay. it'll be post March 24th. Okay, yeah. So, do right. you have the URL and all that sort of stuff? You know, it's it it'll just be sort of on Kickstarter. I, I I do have like a sort of sketched out like craw Facebook page that 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 will, it will be posted on. I've got some other like outlets that I'm hoping to be promoting it in that I don't really want to say right now because they're not sort of like confirmed. But I guess you know, um, I have a blog, Dark Forces Swing Blind Punches, which incidentally that that's taken from a Dazzling Kilman. A song now that we're talking about it um but people will be able to find it there i'm on twitter at dark forces swing um hankstemer.com is is my my uh website and people can sort of look at any of those places i mean i'm, I'm obviously going to be you know working full-time to promote this hopefully again i don't really want to say the names but there are people who've said that they'll help promote it so i'm hoping that anyone who's kind of in this zone where they're looking at the internet and they're reading about like sort of underground music this is going to be i'm hoping that it will be in front of their their vision and you know we'll see i mean it's you know i i i've done my best to get the figures in place and you know this is not a cheap thing but i think that i'm i'm hoping that there's enough of the audience there that we can get this thing made and either way i hope that it, we're just surfacing you know the, the name for discussion you know that crawl will be out there and people will be talking about it like oh yeah i remember that and then like the greatest thing would be to hear that people would be discovering it who didn't hear it back then you know um well i'll do whatever i can you know there's last time i checked there's like 11 or 12 people that listen to this podcast <laughs> I, could, I could probably convince them to like somehow check this out you know yeah you know like my google anal uh was it google analytics or whatever. I have one of those yeah. for my blog too yeah sometimes. yeah it's like maybe it's small maybe, victories maybe 15 or so yeah, yeah. it's the small victories on the google <laughs> analytics you know but but yeah i mean i don't know I, I i'm just trying to do whatever i can you know i i guess my name is out there as a writer and maybe if people are interested i do a lot of writing about like jazz and metal and all this stuff and i think that people who are interested in the stuff that i've covered might want to you know come check this stuff out we'll see i don't know I'm just i'm excited to have it up and who who knows what happens with these kickstarter things i don't know so should I give Joe McTie's phone number? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. So people can That's call. a great idea. <laughs> I'm sure he would love that. He would just, that would be great. He would love that. He's so happy. <laughs> yeah. But, 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 but yeah, I just want to say too, one thing I did not say was that all, there are seven people who have played in Craw total. Eight. Oh, right. Eight, including Lori. Right. Okay. But she's not on the recordings. And including Matt and Marcus. Right. Because they're on the recordings. Two saxophone players yeah, yeah. On, on, on Lost Nation Road and some of the other stuff. But but in terms of the core members, there are seven. And I just wanted to say that all those member 
Chris Aponius, I've, I've only had like sort of like fleeting contact with, but all the members are on board. It's sort of like everyone's given their blessing to it. It's like, you know, it's, it's as, as official as something like this can be. So I just want people to know that if they're, you know, if they're giving their hard earned money to it, that like the band is behind it and sort of supports what I'm attempting to get off the ground. And <laughs> so just to make that, that element of it clear. All right, gentlemen. Well, thank you for coming by tonight. And, um, you know, once again, man, keep your eyes open for all this stuff. We got some, you know, great stuff coming out with this uh, this box set. So have Let's a good evening. So. Thank you. Thank you.